Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. And as we always do at the beginning of our podcast, we want to remind our listeners that some of the topics that we talk about can be really difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and your well-being. Please reach out for emotional support from your family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll give you that address at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Claire. And we are so delighted and pleased to have with us Ken Green today as our special guest. Ken, welcome to the podcast. And could you kindly just share a little bit about who you are, what you do, and you know anything you want to share as your bio and you know a, a bit about you? Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm, my name is Ken Green. I played the PGA Tour for 20-plus years. Uh, that's golf, if, for those of you who are not golf fans. Very kind of you, Ken. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for you. I played with the likes of Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson and Seve Ballesteros, so that might ring a bell to, to some of your listeners. And it was, uh, gosh, I couldn't, I mean, you can't really ask for a better life, in my opinion. And then as life moves on, we have to, we have a wait period that we have to wait basically because you're not as good. It's hard to compete when you're 45, 46 with the, with the kids and you wait for a thing they call the champions tour, which is individuals over the age of 50. And I had just turned 50 and was starting to play the champions tour when our motorhome blew a tire, crashed off the highway. I lost my wife and my brother and my favorite dog, Nip. I also lost my leg, which Obviously, for obvious reasons, I, I can't compete at that level anymore. But we've been fighting the fight ever since and trying to do everything we can to do anything we can to help anybody who's had curveballs thrown at them in life. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. You know, I think I, no one can imagine the steps we all walk and how it feels to be in those. And, you know, I think our listeners are all people who appreciate that we can grow out of tragedy and out of harm and hurt and find a new way to, you know, retool our own vision for our lives and what it means to go forward from that place or places that have been so hard. So perhaps we could start a little bit about that journey. I I think we need to go back to your personal story, though, for our listeners if that's okay, the thing that you have in common with so many of us, and as much as you'd like to share, just to, you know, we, it's not a comparison story for anyone. It's more, you know, I think most of our listeners can, and then please go ahead. I think we, we're hearing more and more. It's not like whose story is worse or who's hurt more. It's, it's more like what are some of the facts surrounding your situation? How did you perceive them? And how do they connect or, you know, resonate with our listeners? And and how did you take that path, that next healing step? So please share whatever you'd like in that, you know, starting point. Sure. When I was about 11, I was close to 12, my, my mom and dad told us that we were moving to Honduras, which I don't know if you could think about how what we knew back then at that age. I didn't even know what Honduras was much less it was a different country. And as I would find out, it was my mom, my dad was a really bad drinker. And she thought maybe moving to 
a foreign country would limit the possibilities and save the marriage. And he was a principal. So he became the principal of the American school in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. You know, when you're a kid, you're all right, whatever, you know, you're doing what you're, you're told and you just go along with them. And about a year, maybe a little less time, I would find myself waking up without any pajamas on. Now, I had to sleep in the in the hall, basically, because we had my uh, my brother and my sister, a friend of my mother's and father's moved down with us. So I didn't have a bedroom. So, but, you know, again, I, I don't care. You know, at that time I'm 12 years old. So what do I care? And I could never figure out why I would wake up without any clothes on. And, you know, I, you don't think anything much about it. You just keep on moving along. And, and then one day I, I woke up when the individual who had moved down with us, his name was Louie was playing with me and of course i i had no idea what was going on and he then explains to me that he was chosen by my parents to teach me about love and sex and everything and i i just you know i just all right fine you know i mean he's been around our lives as long as i can remember and and so i would i just accepted it and did whatever and i know this next part is going to sound really screwed up even to this day there's part of me that doesn't blame him and i don't understand why i think like that because it doesn't make sense you know it's something i'll probably never understand why i i think like that uh you know it's not like it's not like you know it wasn't awful it wasn't you know physical or you know i hate to use the word dangerous or you know it was just all right, whatever. And then sometime after that, things got really bad. After two years, my mom decided that the marriage wasn't going to work and that my dad was drinking and that she had to, to move back to Connecticut. Now, at this time, I had somehow found two other people involved in this thing. And this is when things got pretty ugly. They were much more physical. And I, I remember the one time telling him I didn't want to do this anymore. And I took a, I took a pretty bad beating. And I was told to tell my mother that I had to stay in Honduras with my dad. And if I didn't, that they were going to, they were going to kill my dad. You know, again, now I'm 12 years old. You know, I, 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 I mean, obviously they're not, you know, now as I'm a 64 year old person, you makes you wonder how you could have been. I don't want to say foolish or, you know, but I really thought they were going to do that. So I stayed down and the next year got really bad. You know, I, I, I can't tell you, it seemed like every night and I'm sure it wasn't, it, it, it was, it was an awful time. I do just for a second, because I can tell this is so hard, you know, and it doesn't matter how long ago anything was to me, you know, Ken, like you, my assault happened decades ago and it's still extremely challenging, you know, to, to think about it because it rushes right back and you keep um, referencing you know, how you were coping at the time. 
And I think something that maybe would help us think with you through that period of your life, you know, what was a day in the life of Ken like at this point? You know, what kinds of things were you doing and who was around you that might have, you know, looking back now and the day-to-day while you were having this experience and abuse, you know, I, I kind of think about what's going on every day and how do we carry this secret and burden through our childhood? You know, almost like as a journey, you had to somewhere tuck it away. And I'm curious how, if you can remember how that felt and. You know, the, that's where probably the game of golf starts coming into my life because it was the game of golf that, that I just stayed on the golf course as long as I could all the time. We lived very close. So, you know, that helped, you know, my father and, and Louis would go to the course every day after school and the weekends. And so that's, that's where golf started helping save me. And, and the other times it was just, I, I know, I, I don't know, to be honest with you, I just, you just sucked it up and, and I don't know. It's almost like it's so hard to believe that it's happening and you don't necessarily understand all of it. Does that sound accurate? Like you don't understand how wrong and awful it is, or do you think you always knew how wrong and awful it was? No, I did not know. Like I said, the first, the first year of, of this abuse, I can honestly say I didn't have any, thought one way or the other that it was supposed to, that it wasn't right. I mean, it, I, you know, this is why I don't understand how I, you know, but again, this is, you know, 1971 or whatever we're at somewhere in that area. You know, we were 12 year olds for 12 year olds, not like today, you know, with, you know, the internet and everything else. And I had no clue what we were doing was wrong. And you, what, you know, it wasn't until it, things turned really physical that I didn't want to do it. And I, oh, there's another stupid thing. It's like, I didn't want to do it because it was so physical. You know, it wasn't, my brain wasn't saying this is wrong suddenly. It was, my brain was saying, this is way too physical. This is, this is, you know, I'm, like I said, I've still got a broken elbow from it. And it, it, uh, I, I, I had no clue. It was, it was not supposed to happen, you know, and, and, Again, I, you know, different times, you know, I, I don't know. I, don't, I suppose I'd have to talk to a, a psychiatrist or something, you know, but I really didn't know it was like one of the most forbidden things a, a person can do to a, to another fellow human being, you know, and, and I had no idea how it was going to affect my life and the rest of my life. And we're going to talk about that, too, because I know that our listeners want to hear that piece. But I'm thinking, you know, there you were a kid in a foreign country and this person, took, it sounds like took advantage of isolation and in a way took, took advantage of your parents because obviously they didn't know, you know, and it's such a classic situation where you have dysfunctional family, family friend, kid who's obviously dad wasn't so great or was struggling and you know, the, all this parental stuff going on and people who are predators take advantage of that 
right? They, they groom kids. That's where grooming happens, right? It's, it's taking advantage of a kid who needs an adult in their life who seems cool, right? Or seems okay. And family friend. And, you know, I think, and you mentioned earlier, you talked about how you don't, there's a party that doesn't blame him. I think that's pretty common, actually, because clearly, at least at the beginning, there was something okay, right, in your interactions with him, right? Sounds like it was, or at least it wasn't excessively violent. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as I look back on it, you know, obviously, you said, you you know, you say some of the things I've already said, and, and I'm one of those individuals that just blocks, blocks and blocks. And without even realizing how it's affected me as I became an adult, you know, as I became a professional golfer, which I still cannot figure out how I did because a screwed up brain does not work with, with professional golf. It's really wild that I was, I, I honestly tell people, you know, when they, they'll ask me about some of the stuff and it's like, I'm telling you, I would block this so hard. I literally can't hardly remember anything from my childhood. That's how well I blocked everything out. And it's, uh, I, I don't know, if, you know, if that's right or wrong, but, you know, that, that's where I think golf saved me because after that night, you know, what would happen is my dad would get hammered and then he'd pass out and then all the other stuff would happen. And then one night, I was just Louie and the other guy and, you know, he, he, you know, he was drunk too. And we were outside and he was doing what he does. And, but this time the unusual part about it was I was getting pushed into the dirt because I was up against the edge of a wall. And that's the first time where I actually thought I might die. You know, I mean, I, not that I knew what dying was like because you're 12 years old, but I didn't know what, I just didn't know. I mean, it was, I was gasping for air, something fierce, because the dirt, you know, that will never go away now that it's, you know, back in my conscience, so to speak. And we had a a maid, Kaya, and she knew everything was was happening, and she would always take care of me. That particular night, I had quite a bit of blood on me from the wall. And so I would stay with her for, I, again, I, I couldn't tell you if it was 30 minutes. Sometimes it might have been the rest of the night. I, I, all I know is that I left and I was given the master bedroom. I don't know. I guess it was a, it was a bonus, I guess, for staying or I, I really don't, couldn't tell you why. I don't remember, but and that's where I had that outside porch. And when I came back in, this guy, all, all I had in the room because I played a lot was a cop. And he passed out on my cot and I, I'll never know why I just walked outside and I grabbed a rock and I I went inside and I just unloaded. I don't know. I went to my father's room. I was able to wake him up. He and Louie did whatever they did. He put me on a plane the next morning and I'll, I'll never forget. He looked at me. This was before, you know, you're literally walked onto the plane down there and we're outside and on the tarmac and he was he bent over and he he said kid i'm so sorry you did nothing wrong and don't ever tell a living soul you know and i didn't 
I went back to Connecticut. I was screwed up for obvious reasons without realizing those were the reasons. You know, I wanted to quit school. My mom was an absolute angel. And then, like I said, I, I just tried to block it the rest of my life. I mean, I, it didn't come back into my like conscious until I, I had so many other things happen in my life, you know, between the accident, losing my son. I, I had committed, tried to commit suicide. I'm only alive because the dog saved my life. That's another story. And some friends were pushing me to write a, a, a book because I, you know, the things I've accomplished in the golf world and then everything else that's gone haywire in my life. So I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to do that, I've got it. I don't want to be one of these guys that writes a book and leaves things out, doesn't tell. And so I told a couple of people, you know, they were like, whoa. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> but I decided to write it. And, and, you know, so now here we are. And, you know, now I'm still trying to analyze everything that's happened, but what I've become aware of is how it did affect my life and how important it is for someone who's gone through this to get help. But, you know, back then that wasn't an option. You know, if you really think about it back then, that's not an option. You know, today it, you've got a chance, but I, I don't, you guys probably know numbers better than I do. I, I still got to believe most of the people, especially boys, aren't going to tell anybody about what's happened. It's just, I, I just, you know, and it's, 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 it's sad and it's wrong because if they can get it all out and they can talk to the, the right people, you probably won't have to live as damaged a life and maybe can be, you know, productive in whatever manner your, your quote life should be. You know, I married the wrong person that should never have happened. And, you know, as I look back on it, I'm like, this is all because I didn't know anything about women. I, I, when I came back from Honduras, I was a recluse. I wanted nothing to do with people. This is where golf saved me. I went to the golf course. Golf course was my love affair. Can before we talk about golf, and you said so many powerful things, and I would really like to talk a little bit more about some of the things you just mentioned that were incredibly poignant, and I think will help so many, especially male survivors like yourself. And so, yeah, here's, I have at least a two, and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to talk about one part is you had some you described coming back to Connecticut and being a recluse is the word you used. And I, I think it's really interesting to think about what we do as survivors at a young age to protect ourselves and to cope. And that isolation that you imposed on yourself. And now I see how helpful it is to be on a golf course as a, you know, solo navigator of your own life there. And while there is a course ahead of you, the steps are your own and, and you can be safe. And I think, you know, I too went through abuse at a young age before the one that landed me on the cover of Time magazine. And what you said really resonated with me because various survivors take various different ways of coping and I did more what you did, except I wasn't on the golf course. I was buried in a library, eating lunch alone, um, reading books, and not. I I did everything I could not to surround myself with humans. <laughs> all through high school, you know, all through high school, Ken, I just I got good grades, but I there I hid. My golf course was a book. <laughs> 
any book at all. And that's how I kept myself. And I, you know, I think that's an interesting way to cope because so many, Claire and I have talked to so many other survivors and they'll choose. I don't think we've heard the recluse story very often. You know, more often we hear the one who goes and starts using lots of substances and, or becomes hyper psych, uh, sexually active or self-abuse, you know, I, I like thinking about how you are wired to find a, a single solo path to protection and tremendous success because you became so focused perhaps on your self-protection that it propelled you to be a tremendous success on the golf course. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a like a lot like you, and I wanted nothing to do with, with humans. I didn't eat lunch, but it, but you know, the weird, the weird thing is, is I didn't, I didn't put two and two together. I don't know how you were. I, I didn't. It didn't dawn on me that I was doing this because it was my way of trying to survive and and get through everything that happened. So I don't know. Can I? It's the same. It was the same for me. I did it instinctively. I didn't know what I was hiding from or how I was doing it, but I know nothing else made me feel safe and comfortable except for solo success all by myself in a very focused, safe way. <laughs> well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I went the golf route instead of the book route, but Yeah. Okay. Well you're you're an incredible golfer, so I'm I'm glad too. <laughs> I am so I'm so glad. I mean, it's to me, it's triumphant um, how we can carve such incredible talent from, you know, an, an experience and how instinctively. Go ahead, Claire. What were you going to say? Yeah, and it's sort of related. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I think that you talked about how you tried to block it out, and it sounds like you actually successfully blocked a lot of it out. And the ability to dissociate is what that is. I could see how that could be how that could be useful in the high stress competitive environment where you're under so much pressure, right? To perform and dissociation can keep you separated from your feelings, right? It can keep you separated from things that are stressful so that you can focus on the task at hand. I could see how that might be a useful thing, a useful skill. I mean, dissociation can be helpful sometimes. Of course, it could also get us in trouble, right? And I'm just wondering what you thought about that idea. Well, you know, in, in a way, it makes some sense because anyone that knows the golf world or in any sport, really, is, there are there are great athletes that buckle under the pressure, so to speak. And and golf, it's more acute because it's a it's a solo sport. And I've been incredibly lucky in that. Literally, I can I tell people that I have never choked once in my life under the gun when it went coming down the, the those last few holes. And I have no idea why. It's like I went into a different zone. And, and I, you can't draw this zone up. It just happens. And it, I never thought about it being, well, is this, is this also a side effect of Honduras? And, and it's, you know, because it's, there's, you know, when I tell you there's very few golfers that can say that, that there are very few. And, you know, I, I might not have achieved the Tiger or the Jack success, but, you know, they're one of the two that can probably say that they've never, you know, choked under the gun, so to speak. You know, they may have lost the tournament, but they didn't choke. 
Sometimes you just get beat. So I guess that's a new thing I can throw in my brain here and trying to figure out things out. I appreciate that, guys. Oh, that's what we're here for, Ken. That's what we're here for. We're, we're thinking with you and thinking with our listeners. It's it's all a process and all a journey. And the you know, out of the joy to me, out of of talking about our painful moments, is figuring out you know, like a jigsaw puzzle, what they all mean. Life is so short, as you know. Uh, and I just, I want to, you know, tell you, you've been so open and honest. And I too, believe it or not, I lost my sister in a car accident. And uh, I know it doesn't, it's not a son and a wife, but it was my own only, the only family member who was really supportive. And she was killed instantly when she was in her 20s. And I miss her dearly every day, but I think, you know, we just have to make the most of it. So I know Clara probably has another question, but my next one, you know, you, you said the recluse. And the other thing that really struck me is that you, you didn't know what to do. You know, you said, I married the wrong woman. I didn't know what to do with women after what happened. I wouldn't, if you're comfortable talking about that phase of recovery, it's getting comfortable if we ever do with our bodies, our relationships, trust and sexuality, which is a big lump of stuff. <laughs> but how do you feel that, you know, achievement or failure or navigation happened for you? As, as And I'll, I'll say one more thing, like, it, ironically, I knew I was on the cover of Time magazine. And that was very clear what happened there. But I had not remembered like you all the other things that I had been through as a young younger person until much later when I was having my own children and um, who were the same age as I was when I was going through the abuse. So I like you completely blocked it out and almost I don't know how I forgot it. <laughs> it's like you said I don't know how I didn't know it. I don't know how I didn't remember it. But I think when we're so driven as you you know, maybe we forgot it, but I'm curious that maybe the train wreck or explosion of remembering and diving deep, how it impacted what I said first, which is the relationships, the love, the women, the sexuality part, whatever you feel comfortable there sharing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I have no problem talking about anything, but I remember when you know, like I said, in high school, I I didn't even date. In college, I didn't even even date. I, again, I wanted nothing to do with a, anyone. So, you know, when basically the first girl came along, I was, you know, it was nice and all that. And, and that didn't work. She went and got pregnant. So I did the right thing, you know, married and all that, but it didn't last. And the good news is I have a great son today that was wonderful. And we get along great. So that couldn't have worked out better. And then, and then this Ellen, the, the, the next girl that I quote started being with, it was, you know, it was like real, what I thought was love and, and all that. But I had so many signals that this girl was the wrong, not just not right. And literally because of my lack of experience or test runs or whatever you want to call it, I went on, you know, and married her and, you know, we had uh, our own child, you know, and then that, no matter, no matter what I tried seemed to be, the wrong thing, you know, and then she turned up her kids that I raised and, you know, my son against me. And, you know, that's another nightmare. That was, that's what led to the suicide, but it is, uh, you know, is the suicide part of never having 
really recovered from Honduras or is it part of, you know, the bad depression? You know, I, can I just, may I, may I ask what, so I lost you in the age timeline. What year was, where was this all happening? How old were you then? And it was 1997 when I went to my son and told him that I, I'm going to cave to, to them because he was getting affected too, too much by all the drama and the police and everything else that she was causing. And that was like the last straw for me. So for the next three years, I basically another blur of my life. I don't remember one thing that happened. And then, and then finally I had enough and I, you know, I started drinking too much. And then one night I just said enough's enough and took gazillion pills. And uh, really I'm, I'm literally only alive because the girlfriend that I was with, who was the best girl that I've ever been with, was sleeping on the on the couch, and as she tells the story, because I'm I'm passed out by now, she says that Coco kept nudging her and trying to wake her up, trying to wake her up, trying to wake her up, and she kept pushing her away, pushing the dog away, and pushing the dog away, and then and then finally the dog grabbed her by the arm with her with her with the mouth and yanked her off the couch, and and then of course now Sue's a little pissed at the dog, <laughs> and but the dog ran into the bedroom and jumped on me, and when Sue came in, you know to yell at the dog, she realized something was wrong with me. And I woke up 20, uh, 48 hours later. So that shows you how many pills I had me. And it was just, you know, it, it's really amazing. I don't know if people are afraid to talk about it. You know, when, when people will talk to me about the book, cause you know, I've had so many different bizarre things happen. They don't, they don't like to really talk about that because I don't know, maybe they think it's a, you know, I'm going to be afraid to talk about it or it's a tough subject. And, and it, you know, to me, it was, I honestly felt, and this is, this is what depression can do to you, that you and your, everyone around you is going to be better off if you're not around. You know, in my case, I, I thought it was going to be better for Hunter. I thought it was better for Sue. And you just don't, when you're in a real depression, and I, and I think they use that word too carelessly these days, real depression is, is big, is a lot different than someone just having a bad run. You know, you're literally not thinking right. You're, you're, you're not the same person that you really are. At what point? So was it because of the accident and everything that the sort of cascade following that accident where you came to realize or recall what happened to you as a child? I mean, how does that play in to your healing process, I guess? And I still want to, I know we want to hear more about, you know, this terrible accident you had and, and everything that happened because of that. Right. No, it, it was the book that, that probably woke me up in terms of how bad uh, Honduras was, you know, because it's it's more on my mind. Now, here's a another weird one. I was I've been diagnosed with a really rough nerve disorder called CRPS, so I've been fighting a lot of pain since the accident. So even though I wrote the book, my main focus wasn't on the big news, so to speak, of the of the childhood sexual abuse and the incident that happened that night, and because. I've literally been trying to fight off pain. I've been living, li- I'm living off of fentanyl for 12 years, you know, and the oxy pills just to be able to do anything. So I still hadn't had time. The book came out about, I don't know, four or five years ago to start to analyze, you know, my thought process, process versus, you know, what really happened and how am I going to deal with this? And since I've come back from that clinic that has helped me uh, some, I, I don't have the pain that I used to. So now what's coming to life is how am I going to deal? Because now I can't block it. And 
now I've got to figure out, you know, and here's another stupid thing. And, and I know my friends don't care and I know, but it, I do, you know, I, I can't, I can't help but wonder, are they, are they thinking about what I had to do during the sex stuff or, you know, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's, believe it or not, that's my biggest fear. I don't get that, but I'm, I've got to, I've got to figure it out because now, like I said, I cannot block it out. It's, it's here. It's in my head. And I, you know, I've got to figure out a way to just, just let it go and, you know, trust that, you know, these thoughts I have that, you know, my friends are going to coming up with all these, these thoughts are stupid, but they're in my, they're in my head. I don't know if that's normal for, you know, people like me or, or, or not. I, you know, because I don't, I've never talked to anybody. There's no, there's no abnormal. Let's just put it there. There's no abnormal. However you're thinking is what's normal. And I think, I think that given uh, in particular, I think this is a particular challenge for male survivors. You know, it, it's because there's our culture is so obsessed with the fake grooming stuff, right. Or all, you know, all these predatory people who are out there in their heads that are, you know, when the real kids are being ignored, right. When the real problems are being ignored. I think that this, what's in your head are the questions you have for yourself also. And, and part of what may be ahead for you is, we're digging really deep. That's one of Katie's favorite terms. Digging really deep and really deal, you know, talking about that stuff in therapy and and maybe engaging in some kind of particular technique that can help you with the kinds of triggers that can happen with that and and help you find a way to put frames around it, you know, because it doesn't just go away. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's weird because I'm very fortunate in the sense that I have more great friends probably in my opinion than most people do i have so many great friends it's unbelievable but i i've worked at it and i i've gone from a person who didn't want anybody around to now like you know i have a lot of friends and that was another thing that just hit me it's like well that's kind of a, a 180 so it is it, it is it's going to be you know I, I actually i haven't even told Kristen, who's my current partner you know how much it is staying in my head now that i'm not it, it was great when in a way when i had all the pain you know, I said when I had pain twenty four seven, it was it was bad pain twenty four seven. So it it didn't matter what was on the next step, so to speak. But now that the pain's not there all the time, the next step has has come forward, and it's it's all the the abuse and and everything. So, for instance, some friends of mine are getting together and they're doing a fundraiser for to help me with all the costs that the clinic in Arkansas does because insurance won't cover this because they're greedy souls. But it, you know, a part of me is, it's come up with the strangest thoughts in my head. It's like, Oh my God, what's the matter with you? And it's, it, it is something that I have to figure out how I'm going to, cause I need to get this out. This, this, this can't be, you can't let something like this be number one in your head. And it's like, you know, 40, 50 years later, it's now number one in my head when I've been able to block it. I'm not going to say well because of all the other stuff that may have happened, but I blocked it and, and now I can't block it. So I, and, and the only time that I do block and don't actually think about it is when I'm on back on the course for some reason, which kind of explains everything, I guess, in some ways. But Well, it also, I mean, you know, golf, you're outside, you're in nature, you're doing physical activity. 
it's these are all things that are positive ways to cope with with stress or trauma, right? And I I've heard many stories from survivors who, for example, they ride horses, right? And it's when they ride their horse that they can what happened to them is still there, but it's a healing sort of thing. It can take their mind off things. It gives their brain a chance to take a break. They've, you know, and, and actually the, the act of, or running, you know, people who do physical um, activity, it's a, it's a really positive way to take, to handle that kind of issue. So this is a great coping skill for you. You know, it's this fabulous one. At the same time, all these other things have to happen, right? So it's, but at least you've got that. Some people don't even have that, right? So yeah, it's obviously kept you alive in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I'm, there's not a doubt in my mind if I hadn't found golf that I would have been, you know, a, a terrible drunk at, in my high school and college years. The drugs, you know, who knows whether you end up dead or you end up in jail or whatever, but no one, you know, cause when I, I'm, I'm one of those guys, when I do it, I do it 100% full tilt. So, you know, that's a terrible personality trait to have when you're doing alcohol and, and drugs. So I, I, you know, again, cause I haven't taught, I haven't gone to any of the groups of, you know, the, of, of abuse and anything. And so I don't know how people, uh, how they've managed to cope, you know, what, what they did to cope. So, you know, I can only go by what kind of what I did, you know. Dogs is another, you know, another thing that says, uh, I mean, I've had, I'm on my 41st, 42nd, 43rd dog now. So that's another savior that's always been good for me. Well, maybe um, we could focus on a, la- a last few points for our listeners, Ken. If, you know, you, I'm thinking about just where you are with your own, you know, you described the where you are on a lot of fronts, but you know, where, what's going to be the next step that you take in your healing journey? Because it kind of sounds like, you know, you're still right there next door to the the pain process and both physically and, you know, emotionally, what do you think is going to help next? You know, I don't know. I really, you know, I never expected this, you know, like, like after I wrote the book, and everything came out, I I didn't go through that, whoa, that, you know, and again, not putting two and two together, I didn't realize that the that the pain was stopping, was blocking my brain from really trying to put it all together and and then finally letting it go the best you can. I mean, you'll, you can never let it go because it's always part of your life. It's, you know, it's what I, I tell people that have lost their child or, or their spouse or whoever. It's like, you know, you'll never let it go but you you can't let it run your life. So I I've got to I've got to and I'm not really sure what what I'm going to do yet. You know whether I go talk to some people or whether I knowing me the way I know me, I'm going to try to do it myself first and hopefully I'll figure out a way, you know, maybe uh, that I can. And then if that doesn't work, I'm going to have to talk to somebody and and just get it all out there and and make sure that I'm on the right track. Well, the, it, it's, you're at a place now where you want to carve a path for yourself. And, you know, it's hit and miss sometimes, but you're going to find, it sounds like, and it seems to me that you're one of those people who's going to find your way one way or the other. I will. I mean, one, uh, you know, that goes back to that 100% full tilt. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. 
you know, and I'll, 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 if I can't do it on my own after, you know, doing some reading and searching, you know, reading different stories, which I've, I've been doing and then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll probably do the therapy or, you know, the group stuff and see how that works. And, and then uh, I'll, I'll figure it out. I wish you all the best. I, I, you know, one thing is when we talk to survivors, whether male, female, or non-binary, doesn't matter. They're all at different stages of their healing. And one-legged guys, I think you may be the first one-legged guy, and uh, certainly our first professional golfer. But that people are at different stages of their healing process, and and sometimes we're talking to people who have really gone through a lot of healing, and they're looking back and reflecting, and they've learned a lot, and they're sharing what they've learned. And you're at a different stage, and I think a lot of our listeners will really connect with where you are right now. Like they're at that, okay, what do I do next? How do I get through this thing? How do I find a place to heal and and turn this into something that it becomes, it's part of me, but it doesn't rule my life. You know, that, that so many people are struggling to get to that place. And so I want to thank you for sharing that and your openness about that, because it's so important for people to hear. So thank you. I'm, I'm willing to, to do whatever I can to help myself and or help others, you know, at the same time. And we also just want to recommend um, your book, of course. Uh, they can find your book on Amazon or where books are sold. No, actually, it's, uh, well, here's another. I refuse to put it on Amazon because of the profit that they would make it was insane. They're making more money on my life than me. And I didn't write the book to make money. Money means nothing to me. I mean, you know, I and Kristen knows I give away way too much money as it is. It's just, you got to go to kengreengolf.com. And the name of the book is Hunter of Hope. Hunter is the name of my son that I lost. That's why I wanted, I wanted to have his name in there. So it, it, it's a combination of a book of, of it's got some incredible, great stories of the of golf and the PGA Tour. And then, it, I, I you know, like I said, I've, I've had a bizarre ride of the strangest things that have happened. You know, I mean, you know, the dog saving my life. And, you know, I wrestled an alligator to save my dog's life. And you know, they've gone off cliffs and didn't die and just weirdest things have happened. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting to read about it. And I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again uh, for joining us, Ken. And Claire, can you close us out? And we're so grateful to all of our listeners who joined us for this episode of Dear Katie's Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to all of them. And thank you listeners again. And thank you, Ken, for joining us and for being present today. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you again, Ken. And to all of our listeners, please join another episode of the Dear Katie podcast to continue our journey towards strength and healing. Take care.